standing on top of the Mount of Olives provides a breathtaking view of the old city of Jerusalem. It's one of the iconic stops on any pilgrimage to the Holy Land and very much revered by Christians. Sloping away from the Mount lays the Kidron Valley whose western slope leads to the Temple Mount where the great Jewish temple built by King Herod stood. According to the New Testament, Jesus passed this way many times. The Garden of Gethsemane is on this route, and you will remember that's where he begged God to be saved from his imminent death. Now, parts of the Mount of Olives are quite lovely, if overrun with pilgrims and tourists. But one unexpected detail involves the immense cemetery that covers a large swath of the sloping valley, the richest concentration of rock-hewn tombs, actually. This was a principal location for burial in the time of Jesus, and it remains so today for Jews as well as for Muslims in another sprawling sequestered area who all want their final resting place near to the heart of their sacred story. The Christchurch pilgrims who returned just a week ago walked from the top of Mount Olives, Mount of Olives, through this cemetery and the Garden of Gethsemane, down into the valley, and then up the far slope to the massive base of the temple wall, the eastern portion of the temple wall. Now, I've done this trek a bunch of times, and I'm always a bit disoriented by the deep emotions that well up, triggered in part by this walk through what I'll call the valley of the shadow of death. The truth is, I rather like cemeteries. I find them stirring. They sharpen my awareness of the days of my life sort of stirs up the meaning in Muhammad Ali's pithy wisdom that you may have seen this week. Don't count the days. Make the days count. You know, at root, at root, religion is our attempt at making sense of our dilemma of being born and having to die. As far as we know, we're the only species who has this self-awareness, Of course, you know, folks often spend out their lives in a kind of relentlessly forced denial of this reality. We see this spread out all over on our pages of news and media. People who are relentlessly denying what's up ahead of them, working out all sorts of business, trying as they might to hold off the future. Authentic religious perspective takes hold when we finally embrace this full on. Not long ago, I toured the 9-11 Museum, which, as you know, is also outside a memorial. And I walked by, though, St. Paul's Chapel, which became a refuge next to Ground Zero, 
where, as many of you may know, an old cemetery occupies the backyard with stones dating from the 18th and 19th centuries. We treat it a bit like a museum now. But in those days, death and its aftermath was a close-to-home event. Persons who had died would have been laid in their home's parlors where friends and neighbors came to pay their respects. Within a short period of time, the, the body would be taken to the church where services of death and resurrection were celebrated. Immediately following, these persons were buried either in the church's yard or in plots nearby. You, As you've traveled around the United States and many rural communities, you've seen this everywhere. It was a standard practice. So this process from death to burial was intimate and close to hearth and home. There was, by the way, no embalming in those days. That didn't become widely adopted in the U.S. until the Civil War, interestingly enough, when this European fashion was imported to help manage the final transitions of the war's many, many casualties. From the Christian point of view, this older ritual had great theological merit, I think. Death was a close part of life, not sequestered like today in the U.S., made antiseptic and at least three steps removed from ordinary experience. We make it an extraordinary event these days to be kept sort of out of mind and distant, if you will. To have one's loved ones buried in the churchyard was a way of keeping close their memory, as well as the promise embedded within Christian hope, belief in a God of life. After all, that's what resurrection faith is. The churchyard cemetery was a potent reminder that death was part of life. From God we came and to God we return. The passage of time in this earthly existence closely held in God's heart. As the prayer in our funeral liturgy recounts, O God who gave us birth, you are ever more ready to hear than we are to pray You know our needs before we ask and our ignorance in asking. Give to us now your grace that as we shrink before the mystery of death, we may see the light of eternity. Speak to us once more your solemn message of life and death. Help us to live as those who are prepared to die, and when our days here are accomplished, enable us to die as those who go forth to live so that living or dying our life may be in you, and that nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from your great love. Now, as I have told you before, this prayer is a regular part of my own spiritual practice, because I find there is tremendous power and beauty in this understanding. And I commend it to you, I suggest you copy it down and stick it on your computer screen 
you will find it in your hymnal on page 871. Unfortunately, the power and beauty of this prayer is more elusive these days because the further we stray from consciously attending to our sacred core, the further we remove ourselves from real life and the great undertaking of forging meaningful, loving purpose out of the days we have. I actually believe that we are fleeing, lickety-split in our culture today from these sorts of considerations from consciously attending to our sacred core. We are phenomenally distracted from this all-important exercise. I mean, that's what we want after all, isn't it? Don't we want meaningful, loving purpose out of the days that we have? And isn't that part of the deep ache we feel And isn't it helpful to feel it in the company of others who acknowledge the same thing, to sort of confess it to one another? Yes, we are only frail humans on this sacred journey. We worship the God of life in here. Everywhere in our scriptures, that message rings loud and clear. From the opening pages of Genesis, the tell of God's awesome creative energy bringing matter into existence and animating a bit of clay with God's spirit breath through the stories of leaders like Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Elijah leading to the days of Jesus and his followers and now us, including us. In the span of this great sweep of a story, we read the proclamation about God of life, the God who wills that life should flourish in a healthful and wholesome manner. And you know, friends, this is no Pollyanna drink the happy juice and smile a lot form of spirituality. You know Christians like that, I bet. That's not what we're talking about here. Jesus' time on the cross, his own embodiment of the human dilemma concerning birth and death, is the ground of our hope. That's whom we worship in here, and that's what inspires our community. That's why he's up there and why we've given him the name of our building. And that's then how we need to come to read the story from today's gospel. Jesus and a large entourage that has been following him come to the town of Nain, where they encounter another crowd. It's a a lot of people in a funeral procession. A widow's only son has died, and she is beside herself in grief. In all probability, he died the very same day as the procession. For among Jews of the first century, it was customary to bury the dead on the very day of passing. The deceased was washed, anointed with perfume, wrapped in linen, and carried to the tomb. This was the procession Jesus and his followers encountered. And the son is restored to his mother. But the loving purpose here is not only the gift of life to the young man. Without her son, the widow also was bereft of a secure future. In the patriarchy of the day, women who were unattached to men faced a precarious situation. That's why, by the way, there are so many references in Scripture to the care of widows and orphans. 
that was shorthand for the very most vulnerable people in society. It's no accident that this is a restoration of a son to a widow then. He's explicit. This was a widow with an only son. That's why we're told this information. As in Elijah's day, about a thousand years earlier. Because God's purposes permeate the whole of human existence, including contending with the powers that are more death-oriented than life-oriented. We're constantly, as followers after the way of Jesus, contending with the powers that are death-oriented in our culture and in our time. Health, healing, and wholeness form God's holy agenda. There is no question this lays at the heart of Jesus' message. A couple of chapters later in Luke, when he's sending out his disciples with the kingdom message, he says to them, whenever you enter a town, cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is why, by the way, there are so many hospitals around the world in the name of Christ. Birth, life, death, resurrection. This is the Christian path. Birth, life, death, resurrection. At every step, a pathway to life. A pathway fraught with peril and temporary demise. No question about that. But fueled by hope, born of faith in the companionship of Jesus, and gladly with each other as well. Aren't you glad for others on this journey? Now you will judge for yourselves about all of this, of course, as it must be. But by every means available, with as much grace as possible, we will, we will proclaim here, as it has been proclaimed for millennia, that the kingdom of God is very near. And a precious bit of this kingdom is at the very center of your being. The God of life will have the day. That's the core of resurrection faith the God of life, will have the day and cannot be denied.